This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. RTD's newest rail line opened Monday. The B line takes travelers between Denver Union Station and Westminster. It'll eventually go to Longmont, but no earlier than 2042. Other voter-approved fast-tracks projects will come online this year as well. R-Line expansion in Aurora, for example, and the G-Line to Wheat Ridge. We have a question with all this. Are rail lines markedly improving quality of life? Two researchers come to different conclusions. Andrew Getz is a geography professor at the University of Denver, specializing in transportation and transit. Michael Ransom is an economics professor from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. And it's nice to have you both on the program. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Great to be here. Andrew, you published a study in 2012, which concluded light rail corridors that were open at that time in Denver, quote, succeeded in lowering the rate of increase in the level of traffic. In other words, traffic didn't necessarily get better, but it got less worse. Traffic obviously related to quality of life. Uh, What did you find the impact to be? How big an impact did rail make on traffic? Well, overall, we found that the impact was really quite modest. Um, If you look at that time period from the early 1990s until 2010, um, with the opening of the Central Corridor and then the Southwest Corridor and then the Southeast Corridor, um, we looked at different levels of traffic on the highways in the areas around those rail lines. So it wasn't traffic all over the metro area, but specifically related, related to those corridors. Well, we focused on those, but then we also looked at traffic in other areas just by way of comparison. Ah, got it. Yeah. So what we found is that for certain periods of time, for some years, there were declines. Uh, other years, there weren't. Uh, and that overall... The uh, highways and roadways that were nearer to the rail transit tended to increase at a uh, slower rate than the highways that were outside of that area. So they still increased, but they increased at a slightly slower rate. And and how how big was the difference? Uh, we found a, a 10% difference in, in terms of the, the rate of increase, okay. uh, but it was for mainly for some highways, uh, just for certain periods. Periods of the day? Periods of time, per, of years, not, of years. Not, not day. We didn't look at it specifically for um, certain hours of the day. Okay, so about a 10% difference. You call that modest. And did that surprise you, those findings? No, not really. Uh, we, To tell you the truth, we really didn't expect to find a huge difference at all, um, but what we did find was that at least there was some impact that happened as a result of the light rail getting started. Moreover, really what's the main uh, advantage of having the light rail lines is that it provides another alternative to congested highways. Uh, The highways are going to be congested one way or another. Uh, Having that rail transit provides another mobility option. And we're going to dig more into that and other potential benefits of transit beyond simply the relieving of congestion in a bit. But uh, let's bring in uh, our guest from uh, Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. And uh, Michael, you just released a paper using essentially the same data set that uh, to some extent critiques Andrew's conclusions. Explain what conclusion you come to. 
Well, um, our, our main uh, my, my, our main cr- critique is that uh, the comparison that uh, that the earlier paper made was not really informative. In, in other words, the areas that they said were not affected by rail, that is, those those that were further from downtown, uh, far away from the rail lines. Um, our argument is that uh, that those um, are not they're not it's not a useful comparison it's not like a, a scientific uh, you know a control group versus a experimental group and that's because um, those uh, highways that are outside of the influence of of the rail lines um, are in areas of the county that are growing much more uh, areas of uh, of the metro area that are growing much more rapidly, and you would expect that um, traffic in those areas would grow more rapidly. Uh, we also pointed out that um, that the highways that that uh, they focused on, um, that Professor Getz and his colleague focused on, were highways that were already congested. I mean, there's a reason that they built light rail where they did is that that these are corridors that were heavily congested and, and our argument is that uh traffic couldn't grow uh more there or couldn't grow as rapidly because uh, congestion was more severe to start with in those areas and that's that's what we showed in our paper and so so um uh, um we don't really make a statement as to whether there's a benefit or not we just we just argue that uh, that the study really didn't inform us about that, uh, about the you know if there was any congestion relief or any reduction in the rate of growth of traffic uh, that could be attributed to the light rail expansion. You know, this is such a fundamental question, I think, when when Americans in particular and maybe Americans in the West think of transit. Will it reduce congestion? Will it reduce traffic? What we're hearing here is that's a a difficult question to answer and that it might make only a modest difference. Andrew Getz, is it the right question to be asking, do you think? Well, it's part of it. Uh, You know, I think... When rail transit systems were being built uh, back in the 70s and 80s or so, there was a great amount of optimism that they would really be able to, quote, solve traffic congestion. As we were building these and seeing how they operated in an urban environment, which was already pretty well spread out due to the effects of highways and automobile traffic, we found that uh, rail transit really wasn't the, uh, the solution to the congestion problem. But what it does is it does provide other alternatives for people getting around. Still, it's important to take a look at what effects are happening with regards to to traffic levels and whether or not the rail transit is having any impact at all. And so that's why we wanted to take a look at that. Michael, in 2014, you wrote that a number of Western cities, including Denver, have built rail systems over the last 30 years and that many are economic disasters. No mincing of words there. What do you, what do you mean by that? And do you include Denver in that? Um, uh, uh, well, 
let me speak generally. I, I don't. Uh, I, we didn't try to do kind of a cost benefit analysis for Denver, and so I I can't speak specifically to that. But uh, let me give you an example in um, in my area. Uh, so they've built a commuter rail line in. Uh, in the Salt Lake metro area that connects uh, Ogden north of Salt Lake with uh, Provo on the south of Salt Lake. And uh, they spent $1.5 billion on this. Um, It covers about uh, 20% of its operating costs. That's the operating costs. And so if you look at the amount of subsidy that they receive, uh, a typical rider receives, if you think of them as sort of daily commuter the subsidy is on the order of $1,500 per month per rider. And so you say, okay, um, if we're subsidizing that, we must be getting some public benefit from that. And it's really hard to, to think what that benefit would be, especially if if the benefit isn't a reduction in congestion on the roadways. Because that's, you know, if... Um, uh, any of the other benefits that you might talk about w- have to be small, and uh, and so so the question of whether there's congestion relief is actually uh, actually crucial to these things. If you're gonna if you're gonna justify it on the basis of some cost benefit analysis, now uh, Andrew talks about uh, giving people options, uh, and the question is. Uh, why why do we spend so much money to give them that option that's that's the economic question that that uh that that I have in mind when I say that these things are are disasters because um because they they don't um they don't really come close to co- passing this uh, cost-benefit analysis. And I, I should uh, say that there are those who are along where the B line is supposed to extend to Longmont who may share some of your sentiments because they have paid into fast tracks, but they will not see, many of them, rail service in their lifetimes. So there's a sense of of subsidizing other riders in the system. The scale of dollars are similar here in Denver. But is that a fair assessment to make, Michael? Because you you don't just build a rail system for today. You build it for future riders and for a metro area like Denver that is expected to see explosive growth. So is is that really a fair calculation uh, when you talk about, you know, riders subsidizing or, or pardon me, well, taxpayer so, subsidizing? I mean, I, I, I guess your argument would be that somehow in the future, this is going to pay off. And uh, we haven't seen that in places like Portland or Atlanta, for example, where they built expensive rail systems in the eighties. Uh, we just, we just haven't seen that, you know, there's, there's, there's the hope, um, you know, there are a lot of these sort of urbanists that, that hope that when you put in a rail line, that it's going to create sort of dense urban centers around the rail stops or something like that. But the, the problem is that um, in the world of the automobile, uh, it's just our cities are, are just not designed for rail. And so, I mean, you can look at the map of fast tracks and what that does is it brings people to downtown Denver. But but uh, the people in Longmont know that that's just one of many destinations that they need to get to. 
and and that's that's the problem with uh, with these rail lines is that they you know they they're sort of built on this idea that everybody needs to go downtown and uh, uh, if you happen to work downtown they they probably serve you well but but it's it's not a realistic view of of uh, of how uh, urban areas in the United States uh, exist. And yet, Andrew Getz, we're seeing transformations, aren't we, in Metro Denver that might conflict with what Michael Ransom is saying there. I mean, transit-oriented development has been a big talking point for RTD and around fast tracks, the idea that transit can help shape development, raise property values, for instance. Um, so how would you respond to what, what you've heard from Michael there? Yeah, I agree uh, absolutely that things are changing pretty dramatically, that urban transportation patterns today are, are, uh, are moving in a different direction. We're seeing uh, less uh, single-occupant vehicle use. Um, we're seeing uh, increased transit use. We're seeing more biking. We're seeing more walking. We're seeing more development occurring around the transit stations in high-density mixed-use centers, and there's more activity. There's more population concentrating there. There's more employment concentrating there. So what typifies the period from, say, the 1950s up through the 1990s, maybe up to about 2000 or so, was one of predominant suburban sprawl, Mm -hmm. dominated by building out of the highway system and suburbanization processes. Since about 2000 or 2005 or so, what we've seen is a shift, a real shift in terms of movement back into uh, core areas of cities in higher density nodes. Uh, A lot of younger people are not interested in uh, driving as much. They don't necessarily want to own a car, don't necessarily want to have a license, want to have more options. Car sharing becomes more of an option. Many things now are available that haven't been previously. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are asking whether rail service and its expansion in Metro Denver has improved quality of life. And we're getting two viewpoints on that. You just heard there Andrew Getz, geography professor at the University of Denver, and Michael Ransom is with us, an economics professor from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. And uh, Michael, I just want to point to some reporting from Politico. We spoke to a reporter, Colin Woodward, back in May, who says the rail system's greatest value is how it has changed neighborhoods near stations. And he made the point that if metro leaders had recognized that possibility, they might have moved the rail lines away from major highway corridors to other places that needed more revitalization. But I'd like you to address what you've heard from, from Andrew Getz there, that Indeed, transit is shaping neighborhoods uh, and having a real influence, especially at a time perhaps when millennials are not so car reliant. What do you say? Well, I, um, I, well, first of all, I would say it's it's pretty early to talk about the structure of cities changing from 2000. Uh, I do know uh, what uh, census data on commuting patterns for Denver tells us, and uh, in in the year 2000, 8.4% of uh, commuters, these are people who have jobs and are going to jobs, 8.4% took some form of public transit. In 2010, it was only 6.8%. So um, if you look at the census estimates of the total number of commuters in Denver, 
1980, there were more than there were in 2010. Uh, these are people who use public transit to get to work. Now, um, there are lots of other kinds of uh, issues. Uh, I mean, people don't just need to get get to work. So, um, uh, I, I don't. I really can't argue with uh, Andrew about how these uh, things are changing cities. Um, I, I think it's too early to really tell there. Um, there are some demographic patterns, for example, uh, family formation, uh, childbearing. Those are changing, and those those change the attractiveness of urban areas dramatically. And uh, those are those are things. Um, maybe those are long term trends, and and maybe uh, American cities are going to look a lot different. But but it takes a long time. I mean, uh, to to form a city, and. Um, uh, when you talk about uh, increasing the the population density of areas around uh, around these stops, uh, you think what what's involved in that, and th- these are these are processes that take decades, not. Uh, you know, it's not something that happens overnight. So uh, I want to get to. Uh, him. Uh, it could be the case that that will happen, but I I would say it's it's really too early to tell. I want to get to a more fundamental question um, about whether rail, which uh, the decisions to build it out were made decades ago. You know, this takes real planning. Um, it was the right avenue, was the right approach, because now we're seeing driverless cars and we're seeing all kinds of other potential technology that wasn't necessarily uh, so clear to planners back in the day. When you look, Andrew gets at the cost of a system like fast tracks and the use of the system uh, uh, currently and maybe even in the next 10 years, do you see it as a wise investment or should leaders have looked at something else? Oh, I think it was a very wise investment. In fact, I would say that we need to be doing even more of that. Um, If you look at um, what Fast Tracks is doing in terms of expanding rail transit throughout the Denver metro area, providing access to the airport, providing access in all of the different corridors throughout the metro area, uh, it it clearly is providing some important alternatives to getting around by highway. So but when I, you look at the price tag versus, yeah. let's say, the ridership, you, you, you stand by that. You mm-hmm. say that's, that's, it is worth that investment. Yeah. Well, in terms of the ridership, a lot depends on the scale at which you're looking at it uh, for the entire metro area. Um, the, the percentage might be somewhat smaller, but for those highly congested corridors, the places where the transit really has its greater impact, uh, the mode shares for transit in those corridors are much higher. Andrew Getz, we have less than a minute. I'll give you the last word on whether you think uh, cities should be contemplating other means of transit. Well, I think with driverless... I'm so sorry. Oh, uh, M- Michael. Michael. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, uh, here's here's my argument. I th- I think the future is actually in ride sharing. Uh, so, uh, for example, um, if you compare the ridership of the of the south uh, southeast corridor with um, the you know if you look at the person miles that are traveled on that corridor compared with the person miles traveled on I twenty five and I two twenty five that are right next to it, um, light rail. Uh, is carrying about four percent, which means that you just need to add one rider 
to about every, uh, you know, every uh, 20th car. And you could carry the capacity of light rail. And so when you think about these ride-sharing uh, apps and so forth, uh, there's, there's just a lot of unused capacity on the highways. I, I think that's where the, the future is really going to go, is that, that to, to use uh, use the automobile much more effectively and sensibly. And I think that, um, um, you know, we need to have sensible pricing on, on roads and congestion pricing, and, and that would uh, that would really make make uh, uh, an impact on congestion, but it would also probably make uh, some of these um, public transit options much more viable as well. Thanks to both of you for digging into this with us. So we heard from Andrew Getz, geography professor at the University of Denver, specializing in transit, and Michael Ransom, economics professor at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. We talked about the effects of rail expansion in Metro Denver. So what's your experience? Do you make use of the system? Why or why not? You can comment at the bottom of this story at cprnews.org or send an email news at cpr.org, news at cpr.org. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Frank Shorter is an icon in the running world. There's a bronze statue of him in Boulder, where he started the annual Boulder Boulder Race. In 1972, he won the marathon at the Munich Olympics in 2 hours, 12 minutes, 19 seconds. And he helped launch a running boom. He's got the smell of victory, and that spurs him on. He's looking very good. A marathoner is supposed to be drenched with perspiration and gasping for breath at this point. And Frank Shorter looks like he always looks. He looks like Frank Shorter with his hair combed, jogging along the street. No sweat, Jim, no sweat. But just before Shorter ran into the Olympic Stadium to cross the finish line that year, he heard a roar. The crowd thought the leader had already entered, but it was an imposter. I wonder what Frank is thinking if he sees that guy up ahead. Look at his face. He looks worried. He's looking at the guy. Frank, it's a fake, Frank. We came out this morning saying, what in the world can happen today that will surprise us? Well, this is it. An imposter entering the Olympic Stadium, appearing to win the marathon. Shorter is dazed. He doesn't know what to do. Reading Shorter's new autobiography, I started to think that this mysterious figure tainting what should have been pure victory was emblematic of a theme in Shorter's life, that sweet often comes with bitter. This book is called My Marathon, Reflections on a Gold Medal Life, a warning that we're going to talk about some abuse in his past, candidly, and a Frank Shorter, welcome to the program. Ryan, thank you very much. Thanks. Was that announcer we heard right, that you were unsure if you were in the lead at that point? Uh, No, he was wrong. He knew who I was. That was Eric Siegel, who, in addition to writing Love Story, uh, was a great classics professor at Yale, and I actually took two of his classes, and he knew me. Uh, And Eric's dream, since he was a classicist, was to be a great marathoner, so he was very knowledgeable. But when I entered, I got to the stadium, the the track, and it was silent. And I thought to myself, geez, I'm an American, but give me a break. You know, I was looking around. I was looking around going, what's going on? You see, because it was the last day of track and field. Now the marathon is closing ceremonies day. But at that time, it was the last um, day of track and field. And, and so 
It was silent. And then all of a sudden, they began to whistle. The crowd whistled, and in Europe, that's booing. So I was thinking, gosh, what's going on here? Now, I knew I'd won because at that point in the race, you back off when you're getting close to the uh, finish and going into the stadium, and you want to just make sure, and I knew how far ahead I was. Uh, I knew I had at least a minute and a half lead because one of the coaches from the University of Florida actually, where I had been training uh, sometime, had been at the 20-mile mark and told me I had a minute and a half. And I hadn't slowed down much, so I knew. And I got on the backstretch, and this voice shouted out from the crowd. They said, don't worry, Frank, Midwestern accent, American. And I thought to myself, why should I worry? I'm winning. And it turned out that this high school student who had a friend who had been driving a golf cart around servicing all the pop stands for the entire time uh, of the track and field um, venue, um, he just jumped on the back of this golf cart dressed up and they went by the entrance uh, where you run from the street down a tunnel uh, onto the track and he jumped off and ran down and ran onto the track and his timing was perfect. I, I actually have looked uh, to see how far ahead he was. And he hit the track 48 seconds before I did. And on a 400-meter track like that, that put him about three-quarters of the way around the track. So as I came in and turned right to head to the finish line and run another lap, you entered the stadium at the start of the 100. Uh, he was already at the halfway point of a lap heading into the far turn. So I never saw him. He was always out of my sight. And so I just ran and dealt with it and got through. And someone came up to me and said, uh, what'd you think of that guy? And I knew, I knew right away. I absolutely knew what had happened. I alluded in the introduction to the struggles you faced. Uh, beginning when you were very young, your father abused you and your siblings for years, mentally, physically, and your sisters sexually. You've been in the public eye for more than four decades, but these revelations about your father's abuse are fairly recent. Why did you start speaking out? It was about five years ago, and I I think uh, people listening who have been in that kind of situation know that when this kind of abuse starts at a very young age, uh, the kind of fear you develop of this person uh, is is extreme. It and it never goes away. It, it's always there in adulthood, and so it really did take um, until my father finally died, and I realized he couldn't hurt anyone anymore. Hmm. And then my mother passed away about two years later, and I I really didn't want to bring her into it to revisit it um, because she tried as hard as she could, but really was not able to protect her children. Uh, I just decided it it was time. But I also want people to understand that there were nine other siblings involved. I had six sisters, and you alluded to the fact that they suffered much more than I did. And all this came to light after an article in Runner's World magazine came out about five years ago, where I just happened to make reference um, to it, to the writer, I had started to speak about it about three months before I was at an event in Springfield, Missouri, talking at a latchkey high school for uh, homeless and abused kids. And I just decided it was time to start talking about it. And a little girl came up to me after. And, you know, she said, well, all all that about, you know, how you all used to lie in bed at night and wait and see who would come up the stairs and grab to beat. And 
um, and how you tried to protect your siblings and, and you always felt guilty because you really couldn't protect them. And she said, that's me. She said, that's, that's my story. And so I just alluded to that in this, okay, what's he up to now um, article that was going to be written for Runner's World in 2011. And the editor, a guy named David Willey, sort of looked at this reference and said, hold the phone, <laughs> he said. And they, they sent the writer back, a guy named John Brandt, who now uh, turns out is also the collaborator on this uh, the book, um, uh, my marathon. And so I told him uh, over the course of two days. And then he said, well, we're going to have to corroborate this. We're going to have to ask your sisters. And my response was, no way. I'm not bringing them back into this. But I got a hold of one of my sisters as an intermediary, and she contacted some of the other sisters because we we really don't have reunions and hadn't contacted each other. What are you going to talk about? Hmm. And um, my sisters were willing, and then even more came out. And it turned out that the story was even more horrific than I remembered it. And and so it just sort of built in that way. Now, and then at the beginning um, of this year, I decided because one of my younger siblings, uh, a brother, died. He was the first to die last year. And I just decided it was time to do it so that I could um, show people that you can have a lot of success the way I did, but you do come from somewhere and there is a story. And in my case, it was survival and emerging from this situation uh, through education and running. I just discovered running saved me. Yeah, and, and to this predicament of not only being beaten yourself, but seeing your siblings abused, and I'll say that you're the second oldest of the ten, you, you write in this book, for me, watching was worse than getting hit myself. Our father knew he had an audience. There was a strong element of theater to his sadistic performances. Um, is there a potential that today... Even still, you're shutting some of what happened out. Oh, I know I am. Because, as I said, when my brother died, um, several of the siblings got together and even more of the stories emerged. And, I, you know, I, I have nightmares that I don't want to describe <clears throat> that involve uh, being around my father at a young age in, in incredible circumstances. And there's a gun involved. He He always carried... Uh, a 38 because he his excuse was he was a doctor with medication on house calls so he needed a gun and and it just uh of course I have and and that's why I think it was very important for all of us you know um I don't think closure really describes it I think it's it's just it was good and especially for me since you you did mention that it was worse to watch my siblings, and then I got to an age where I, I would try to stop him while it was happening, and he was just so much bigger and stronger than I was that I couldn't that I couldn't do that. And with all that coming back, um, I think again to if you'll grant me a a, a mention of you know the other reason why uh, I told the story now is that I've also become involved in some programs for. Uh, young children. Uh, in, in this area, it's called Healthy Learning Paths, where it's a curriculum for the schools and, and diet and exercise for learning, but there's also a mental health component. 
Um, and I think over the last five years, as all this started to unfold for many reasons, I found myself getting into these um, other areas because that is my way of thinking that I could create a system or a situation for other children where they would feel safe. So if they're in these programs and they come from an abused background, they can be involved with adults in a way that gives them confidence and they can feel safe in saying something to some of these adults. So, so Frank Shorter, you, you, how, how did this lead you to running? Um, why was that for you, the natural outgrowth? Well, the, the house was a, a prison. And I found that the YMCA up the street and my friends' houses, um, as I was, you know, oh, maybe six, seven, eight years old, they became sanctuaries for me. And then when I was about eight or nine years old, I started to run um, to these places. I would run to the YMCA. I would run to and from some of my friends' houses. And I, and I found I just loved the motion. I felt safe. He couldn't, he couldn't put his hands on me because I had this feeling he couldn't catch me. And it also allowed me to think. Uh, I could think uh, about my circumstances uh, and, in a sense, create plans and and in a way formulate my escape plan, uh, mm. which came which came through friends' parents, and one one friend's parents in particular, um, the mother was he was a, a Yale graduate, so I don't think it's that coincidental that I ended up uh, at Yale. He was a wonderful doctor who was kind of everything my father as a physician wasn't. And his wife was a Boston Brahmin society lady who came to Little Middletown, New York, and was on the Board of Education and set up one of the first talented and gifted programs in the country. And so I became interested in that because, in a way, I saw academics as my way out, but I also saw the running as the calming influence and the stress relief while I was trying to do it. And part of the reason to bring this out in the book now is that pattern of behavior and the way I deal with problems and set goals and projects and go about attaining those goals hasn't changed. And it was the same sort of attitude I took towards my running when I graduated from college. And then as I started to work on other things, for instance, the U.S. anti-doping work with the White House, I approached these problems in the same way, in my own manner. And let's pick, so my that, back, let's pick that up yeah. after a break. We're speaking with Frank Shorter. His new book is My Marathon, Reflections on a Gold Medal Life. He joins us from Boulder. We'll talk about uh, his time in the Olympics and anti-doping uh, crusade after a break on Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Frank Shorter, the well-known marathon runner, Olympian. His new book is called My Marathon, Reflections on a Gold Medal Life. And just by way of a brief bio here, Frank, you grew up in New York. Your family moved to New Mexico, which introduced you to the West. Uh, really upped your training since you could run at high altitude. Later, you found a home in Boulder where there is a statue of you, as we mentioned. You started the Boulder Boulder. And the high point of your running career, as we said, came at the 1972 Olympics when you took gold in the marathon. You'd really trained for that moment since high school. You'd planned every move, it seemed, leading up to the start of the race. Uh, but you could not plan for what happened just days before when 11 Israeli athletes were killed by Palestinian terrorists. 
Take me to the Olympic Village when that happened. What did you see and hear? Well, I was sleeping on the balcony of our team room. We had about six of the distance runners in in a big kind of apartment complex. And one bedroom uh, was occupied by me um, and a fellow named Dave Waddle, who won the 800 meters in the Olympics. And long story short, they were supposed to give us... uh, Uh, credentials for our significant others, which they didn't. So we forged credentials. That's another part of the story. And Dave Waddle and his new bride, Jan, were in our room. So I had dragged my mattress out onto the balcony. Of course, you know, I'm going to run the Olympic marathon, so I'm sleeping on a mattress on the balcony um, (laughs) in the days leading up. So I heard the shot. I heard the shot um, uh, when uh, the uh, terrorist... You know, broke into the uh, Israeli Israeli quarters, and I knew it was a gunshot, and I wasn't quite sure of what had gone on. But I I woke up the next morning about seven, and the way I've described it is, it's like the jungle when there's a predator; it's silent. There was no noise from down below in the Olympic Village that I would hear as I would wake up uh, in the outdoors, and we all realized those of us in the room. Um, that something had happened because we had a little television and the German telecast was translated by Steve Prefontaine, my my great friend who who died young. And his mother was German. His mother was of German uh, heritage. And that day was described to us and and we realized um, at first our reaction was, we're all going home. People died. Nothing's worth this. You know, human life is so much more important. And so we spent the day doing that, but of course we had to do what runners do, and, and we went to our, as I described, our default mode. One, we went to eat, and two, we went to climb over the fence and run, <laughs> even though the Olympic Village was locked down. And so we went through that day, and and it was everybody getting together. Another part of the story is there was an Ethiopian runner named Hailu Eba who actually ran for Oregon State, and he showed up. Because he wanted to be with people, you know, that that could provide some sort of comfort. So the Oregon State and Oregon runners were all together uh, in the room, and I was there. And we we went through that day, and it was announced there was going to be a memorial service the next day. So we went to it, and it was announced that the Olympics were going to go on after a day delay. And by that time, we realized that that was the right thing to do. And instinctively, we knew that uh, uh, you couldn't do what the terrorists wanted you to do. And obviously, they wanted to disrupt the games. And on the way back, I, uh, the Olympic Village was close to the stadium, and we were walking back, and I was with Kenny Moore, uh, who's, who was my old, oldest friend in running at the elite level. And he's written the foreword to my book, and he's a great writer. And we were writing... Uh, Walking back, and Kenny said, you know, I'm, I'm going to think about the, the Israeli athletes uh, who have been killed while I'm running in the marathon. And Kenny ended up finishing fourth. And Jack Batchelor, my training partner, finished ninth. Uh, parenthetically, we finished 149 in the Olympic marathon after that tragedy. Best finish by any nation in Olympic marathon. But I said to Kenny, I said, you know, Kenny, I'm not going to think about it. Because if I do, they win. I am, mm-hmm. And I ran the entire race. Um, and never thought. And then to, to bring it back, I think, in a way, uh, 
I had learned from a very young age to sort of get into a chaotic situation and sort of read the room and figure out what was going on and decide what it was I was going to do. And and my the only thing I could do and have control over was not think about them, even though the only place you could do something more would be out on the marathon course. Gosh, it sounds like you're drawing a parallel between the chaos of the home you grew up in and the chaos of the Olympic Village at that moment might have given you some coping skills. I want to say that yeah. about, about 40 years later, you were at the Boston Marathon as a television commentator when bombs went off. That was in 2013, of course. Did your mind, just briefly, did your mind go back to that day in 72? When I heard the first bomb, I was right in front of the Lord & Taylor store and decided to cut through it because of the crowd. The Lord & Taylor store was where the camera, video camera on the street showed the second bomb. And I was right across the street, and I had walked into the vestibule because I was going to, I know the area so well, having done telecast there for so many years. And I heard the bomb, the first one at the finish line, and I knew, and I just flashed back. And my thought was, I better get through this building because there are going to be people coming behind me here. And the second bomb went off probably 30 feet, 40 feet away across the street. And the first thing I thought about was I was judging the crowd movement by a man who was carrying a baby on his shoulders about five people ahead of me. And the second thing I thought about was this baby on this man's shoulders. And I was thinking, oh, God, I hope this baby is out of the line of, you know, of whatever um, it is. And I just started to think about in individuals. But, you know, I isn't it... I find it interesting, and when you start thinking about your belief in God and things happening for a reason, I'm probably one of the few people to have heard the shots in Munich and the bomb in Boston, the bombs in Boston. I've heard them both. Yeah, bookends. All right, we'll continue with Frank Shorter from Boulder in just a moment. His new autobiography is called My Marathon, Reflections on a Gold Medal Life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's return to my conversation with Olympian gold medalist marathon runner, founder of the Boulder Boulder, Frank Shorter. He joins us from Boulder. His new autobiography is called My Marathon, Reflections on a Gold Medal Life. And I'd like uh, in the last portion of the program to talk to you about your anti-doping work. Um, So let's fast forward a bit to 1976. You're in the marathon that year, and you bested your time in Munich by two minutes. And despite doing that, still came in second to an East German runner, which really puzzled you at the time. And many years later, you got evidence that this man most likely doped, took anabolic steroids. Um, But you aren't able to prove it definitively since it happened so long ago. Uh, You write in the book that you haven't asked the IOC to change the outcome of the 76 race to award you the gold instead of the silver. Um, And that essentially spurred you to help start the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency in the late 1990s. What did you want to see happen? I wanted to help create a system of deterrence because the idea was I wanted it so... Uh, young athletes, really, this is true, because you see, I came right before the paradigm shift. In 1972, the, the performance-enhancing drug usage had not really taken over the Olympics. By 1976, the entire country of East Germany 
was on a pro, their, their athletes were on a program mandated by their president and run by their secret service, the Stasi. Mm-hmm. And it's a situation very similar to what's going on today, but that's uh, obviously another subject. I ran the whole marathon thinking that the person who finished ahead of me was from Portugal. I thought he was a runner named Carlos Lopez because I had done the commentary with Eric Siegel of the 10,000-meter race in the Montreal Games, the same uh, Eric Siegel who was the commentator when the imposter ran into the stadium four years before. And I noticed this guy, Lopes, from Portugal, finished second to La Severin, and I said, he'd make a good marathon runner. Yeah. So I'm running along, and this person is wearing a white singlet. He wasn't wearing the East German uniform. So, And he ran in a way, and many of the swimmers who swam against the East German women will also tell you, their swimmers, and this runner in particular, didn't get tired in the normal way. It just wasn't, something wasn't right. You know, athletes at that level can tell. People t- get tired, even when you're, you know, the best in the world. You get tired in a certain way. And and so we got done, and he came up to me, and he said, Sprechen Sie Deutsch. And I thought, geez, that's that's funny for someone from Portugal to say. <laughs> <laughs> because his previous performance, I think the year before, was two hours and 16 minutes. And 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 so he had, uh, and it, it turns out that when they do the studies on how much your performance is improved, he, he improved, say, six minutes in a year, which in a way is kind of standard <laughs> in, in that area. But I couldn't do anything about it. We all knew. We all knew. Well, 22 years later, uh, enough evidence came out and the climate had changed and the White House was willing to become involved with a guy named Barry McCaffrey, who was Clinton's drug czar. Long story short, he went over to the IOC meeting uh, in Lausanne in early uh, 1999 where they were trying to deal with the Tour de France scandal because the drug scandal was just coming out. It was called the Festina scandal. Came back, and I became involved with the White House in forming uh, U.S. anti-doping. The White House really drew up the plan, and the United States Olympic Committee was gracious enough to adopt the plan And the point being, it had to be totally independent, and Travis Tiger, who's the head of USADA now, says it's a very simple formula. You can't promote and police. If you're a federation, for example, involved in promoting a sport, you can't be policing it. It It's it's a conflict of interest. And it's ironic, just to parenthetically, with what's going on with uh, the situation with Russia now. Right, right, and Rio. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee has thrown the determination of what Russians can compete in the Olympics back on the international federations that have the conflict of interest. <laughs> you know, So that's all cycled back. But I thought I could create the system of deterrence so that coming up, young athletes, and I believe, and I did a piece for NPR in 2005 where I said if all this talk about you know, human growth hormone and EPO and steroids is making your eyes glaze over, just ask your teenage kids. They'll explain it to you because my belief is the choice is made in high school and I wanted to create a uh, system of deterrence where these kids whose names we'll never know because they got to high school and they had the morals and ethics to say, I'm not going to do this. And to start Those kids will come back. Yeah. They'll come back. We have uh, just about a minute left. Are you still running Frank Shorter? Absolutely. I run today between 50 minutes and an hour. Uh, I do a lot of uh, cross-training. I do a lot of core strength training uh, because I think once you get past 35, you need to do that. 
And my goal since age 35 has been to slow down as slowly as possible. And so that's, that's, what, that's what I do. Um, and, and it's part of my routine. And just to cycle back, you know, running was my stress relief from the age of eight on and through academics. And I just happened to be very, very good at what I did for stress relief. <laughs> Frank Shorter of Boulder. His new autobiography is called My Marathon, Reflections on a Gold Medal Life, co-written with John Brandt. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. With Rachel Estabrook, Michael Hughes, and Nathan Heffel, that's Colorado Matters, from CPR News.